Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read Initiative, where we are talking about how we can make sure that every student gets the right to read. Our conversations are based on the recommendations from the Ontario Human Rights Commission's Right to Read public inquiry report and the recommendations. Today, I have the pleasure of having Mary Moran from Decode Dyslexia into Ireland join me. Thank you for joining me today, Mary. How are you? Thank you for having me and thank you for all you're doing as well. I'm fine. Yes, I'm very good. Thank you. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay, I'm probably... I come from things a little bit differently to a lot of the people that you've interviewed. Um, I, 1985, I was 25 years old and I was not working in education. I had a very good job. My mother was delighted with my job because of one of these permanent, pensionable, good perks, well-paid jobs. But I was, I was not, I was very bored. I had no interest in it. And through a mutual love of horses, I met um, a lady called Kate. She was Kate Deblois. Now she's Kate. She was actually Catherine. Now she's Kate McBahan. And she was working in a college in Boston. She was teaching the student teachers how to, about Orton Gillingham, basically. Uh, she was training them in Orton Gillingham. And she had come to Ireland a couple of times on equestrian holidays, and she decided she wanted to change her life and move here and own own horses and etc. So she moved and she assumed in her innocence that the Department of Education would put down the red carpet for her and she was highly qualified and very good at her job. And she applied uh, for a job here and they had absolutely no interest in her, which was a huge loss to literacy in Ireland because this was almost 40 years ago. And um, they, they had no interest in her because she didn't have the Irish language as part of her degree. So she started tutoring and became overwhelmed very quickly with the amount of children that needed help. And it was around about that time that I met her. And I was at a crossroads. I was really fed up with my job. And she, she probably was starting to realize, as I am now, that she needed help because she couldn't cope with the, the amount of inquiries and the amount of kids that she was getting. So she said to me, look, I have a, a room in a health clinic, actually. She was in the perfect position. She had a speech and language therapist beside her and an educational psychologist the other side, and they worked together, really. And she said, why don't you come along and, and sit in and see what you think while she was teaching? So I did. And it was an eye opener for me because I when I was at school, I loved reading. I didn't. And I don't remember actually ever seeing anybody in my school. Obviously, they were there, but I never saw anybody that, that had difficulty learning how to read. So I was one of these people that assumed it came naturally to you because I loved reading. And as a kid, I, I read a lot. So watching what she was doing, I just was fascinated. And I handed in my notice a couple of days later in my very good job that my mother was probably very upset about. And she said, I'll train you. And in an informal uh, situation, really, she she trained a handful of people, but most of them uh, wanted to teach their own kids. They had dyslexic kids. They wanted to teach their own kids. So she taught me what I needed to know in the sense that she passed on um 
what I needed to teach, but not really how to teach. So after we had done our training, which I can't, I, it's so long ago, I can't remember. Uh, she, we did 300 teaching hours under her guidance, but I can't ever remember sitting in on a, on a lesson, but uh, she provided the children, she monitored the, the lesson plans, she monitored the progress, and then I was on my own. And I found for the first maybe three or four years, and I be quickly became overwhelmed with students, and I found for the first three or four years, if I had an issue or a problem, I would ring her and say, you know, how do you do this or what do you do here? And I, I actually remember probably three or four years later, I, I had this kid for a while that was sounding out everything. And now I know, now I have the terminology. You see, then, anyway, I'll get to that. So I rang her and I said, I have this kid. And when he's reading two syllable words, he's going to rabbit it, rabbit. He's not, he's not, I called it, he's not crossing the bridge to recognizing words or parts of words. What do I do? And she said, Mary, you have to figure it out for yourself. You know as much as I know now. You've teaching a lot of kids. Go away and figure it out for yourself, which actually was very difficult because I had no colleagues. I had, there was really no internet. Sorry. There was really no, um, there was no Google. You couldn't Google it. There were no books. There were, there was no Facebook pages that there are now. I had no way of learning what I had to do. and. What I did on hindsight, what I did is I learned from the kids. Every kid that I had, and I, I have at this stage put thousands of kids through my hands. Every kid I had, I studied. And I just had one figured out. The next one would come in completely different. I'd have to figure them out. And I lay awake in bed at nighttime trying to figure out how do I access this kid's brain. And... And I remember actually the first kid that I ever taught, this is, this is, I have a memory of him because then I was fresh and, and I had still had these preconceived ideas that reading was easy and he was eight. And I remember going to his, his home and I'm going back now to probably 1986, 87, long time ago. And I was probably doing blends with him at this stage. And I remember attributing him with a very low IQ because he didn't have an educational assessment. And in my head, I figured this kid cannot be smart. Or I know now that was wrong, but I was sort of, I was just learning my craft. And, and the this, this story has an interesting ending. I did see him for probably three years. And I don't think I ever changed that opinion of him that this kid isn't very smart, but I taught him how to read. And about five years ago, my niece was on work study assessment in one of the top hospitals in this country in, a, in a, a medical area. And she sat down to have coffee one day with her boss, who was head of the department. And they started chatting. And as only Irish people can do, they'll keep asking you who you are and who you're related to until they actually find out. And eventually he found out from her that I was his, her aunt. And she said he teared up. And he said, I have never forgotten that woman. She taught me how to read. She is why I'm here. And my, my, my niece rang me and I said, oh, my God, I thought he was the stupidest kid I ever met. But, that, but I learned. I mean, I, I, learned, I learned from the kids. And, and I'm really, really good at my job now, probably because I learned from the kids. So when I sit at a table with the child, 
it's it's like I can get into their head now. I know the mistakes they're going to make before they make them. I know how to to solve the problems. Uh, I know what to do. It's I'm so long doing it that I find it so easy. And I know Louise Moats wrote a book called what is it? Reading reading is rocket science or something. Um, for me, it's if you know what to do, it's so easy. And that really upsets me that uh, that it's so easy to solve this problem. It's so easy to solve it with most of the kids that there shouldn't be the issues that we have now. So I can I can continue down there. I worked in in like a cave for years because I didn't know anybody who was doing what I was doing. Nobody. And. Uh, Probably at the start, I saw the writing on the wall a couple of years ago. I said I was I was afraid to put my head above the parapet at all because I'd get flooded with phone calls from parents with 12 year olds and 13 year olds and 14 year olds that were distraught. And and I never, ever said no to a child ever. But I knew the the. the that the end of the road was coming. I'm 62 this year. I can't keep doing it. And I still, up to last year, didn't believe, didn't realize that there was other people doing it in the country or other people that now understood. And I was trying to figure out, well, what do I do? How can I get out of this? How can I cut back on teaching? How can I stop or cut back on what I'm doing? Because I'm working ridiculous hours. And that's when I decided to write a program that was so easy to use that the teachers and parents that were going to use it didn't require a lot of training because who was going to give them the training? So that's what I did. And then I put my head above the parapet and realized, oh, there's a Facebook page called The Science of Reading for Irish Teachers. I felt like I was after finding my family when I found that. And um, now I'm giving talks in schools, I'm giving webinars with the education centers, but now I can do it because I have a tool. When, when a pa parent or a teacher rings me, I can say, I can't take your child, but I can still help you. And that has been a huge relief. Now I can see my exit strategy. <laughs> so it sounds like Ireland has a very similar issue to Canada with a number of students, quote unquote, falling through the cracks because their reading needs are not being addressed in the classroom. And that's exactly why the Ontario Human Rights Commission did that right to read public inquiry and came up with a report with a total of 157 recommendations on how we can do better for our students. Would you say that's accurate? Like you're kind of in the same place that we are needing to do better for our students and helping teachers get the knowledge that they need to do so. Yes, for almost 40 years ago when I started on this journey, I think things were better then for the students than they are now. It was easier to get allowances and exams. Um, there wasn't any help then as there isn't any help now but it seemed the maths the, the maths um program in second level changed to a program called progress maths or project maths 
And in the past, if you were a really bright dyslexic that was good at maths, they could come up. Maths was probably their mental health savior if they were really good at it because they could get the answers. They didn't really know how they got them, but they excelled at maths because they knew what instinctively knew what to do. And then they brought in this new subject in second level that it's not enough to get the answer. Now they have to describe in written language how they got the answer and I said oh no what are they doing to these kids the one thing that a lot of them had to hang on to they've just taken it they've just thrown another roadblock in front of them I couldn't believe it I was so upset when that happened because I knew a lot of the kids it helped their self-esteem if they were good at maths and they just took that away from overnight overnight took that away from them <clears throat> sorry uh, and Nothing has improved in, in 40 years, except one thing now that, that I've come out of the cave and I've started to speak to teachers, the younger teachers, and when I say young, I'd say, you know, mid forties and below, now really want to know um, how to help. And I gave two talks last August. I gave four talks in a, in a study center in Galway. And the first two days were for teachers. The second two days were for parents just to enlighten them as to what structured literacy was. And the teachers were so upset. And they said, they, they, they said to me, why, why is this a big secret? Why is nobody explaining that we can teach these kids? Why is nobody showing us how to do it? Why are we not being given the tools? They, they, some of them were angry. Some of them were really upset. And they just, and I said, I don't know why you're not being given the tools. The tools are there for nearly hundred years. You should be given the tools. Um, so hopefully things will start, the, things will start to change because, and I know um, Dr. Jennifer O'Sullivan said the other day that the change will happen from the top. I'm not so sure change will happen from the top because the top are interested in data. Um, and I'm sure they are interested in literacy. But the, the young teachers are, are like, let's for instance, say, for instance, me, I'm taking phone calls from distraught parents. I meet 15 year olds regularly with a reading age of seven years. And I sit opposite the table and I look at these traumatized, usually boys, because they don't wear it as well. And for me, I'm seeing the pain. I don't think the top sees the the pain that's on the ground. And I feel that it's the teachers who need the tools, who are looking for the tools. They're going to change it, I believe, because for them, it's going to make their job easier and they're going to see the improvement in the kids and they have to watch the distress of the kids in their classroom every single day. So that's where I think change is going to come. And the young teachers are looking for it. They're now actively looking for it. So, I think you brought up a couple of really good points. And one of the problems with just focusing on the change from the top is it's helping pre-service teachers going forward, right? So if today every teacher education program across the globe changed to teaching structured literacy, um, or science of reading or speech to print, whatever term you want to go by, to their pre-service teachers, we still have a whole generation of in-service teachers 
that don't have that knowledge. So even if we were to do that top-down approach, there is still a very large population of teachers that don't have that knowledge. So top-down isn't enough. And I'm so happy to hear that Irish does have that grassroots movement happening because that's how a lot of people believe the change is gonna happen. It's the parents making the fuss. Now, parents have been doing this for decades, making sure that their child gets what they need. And we need to make it so that's not the case. Parents have a lot of stresses on them and it's not fair that only the children who have parents that have the time and the finances to fight for them are able to see the success. There are the teachers that have those students that just like, look, I know this kid's smart. I just don't understand why they can't get it. Reading yeah. is supposed to be easy. You know, I know that, you know, they have a lot of exposure to print and books, but there is, something's not clicking. And then the teacher gets upset or gets, you know, wants to know more. And that's wonderful. And it's so encouraging when teachers take the initiative to find the information themselves, but it's not something that they should be having to do. It's something that their professional organizations should be providing for them. And they shouldn't have to be on Facebook groups. They shouldn't have to be going to teachers, pay teachers and joining the hundreds of webinars there seems to be every month to find this information because there's no quality control in that process. And it's a huge time investment for the teachers. We need to make it so that there is one place to find this information that teachers can go forward and learn and have the professional organizations responsible for providing this training. And we also owe it to the children I am dyslexic myself, and I know exactly about that trauma that you're teaching because I've experienced it as a student, and that's why I do what I do, because I don't think any student should have to go through what I went through, and it really saddens me that we're still having to do this advocacy effort decades after I was a student, and as a parent seeing one of my own children going through the same struggles when we know that all of this could be prevented. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think it isn't until you have a personal experience, either you have a child that's struggling or you've struggling or you've struggled or you see the trauma daily of the struggles. I don't think that you're, I don't think you really get it until you see that and it's the it's the teachers on the ground that are seeing it and they don't know I know oh, probably five years ago I started a child who was he was possibly 13 he was ready to leave national school he couldn't read at all and I rang his uh, I knew his teacher I, I would have known some of the teachers it was a school that I was on contract for a while they gave me a room they knew what I did they just didn't know they knew what I did worked they just didn't know what I did so instead of trying to find out what I did they gave me a room and they they sent kids to me and said that's fine she's her own room she'll do whatever she does but I knew some of the teachers in the school so I rang his current teacher and I said how did 
this happen, that he has gotten through seven classes and that nobody red flagged it really, except his parents. And she said, she was quite honest. And she said, Mary, I couldn't teach him how to read up 30 kids in my class. I didn't have the skills. So we sent him to the resource room and he's been in the resource room every day, all through national school. And she couldn't teach him how to read. So, Sorry. At some stage, she said, we decided he was unteachable. And that tag traveled up through the classes with him. He's unteachable, don't even try, because it's a waste of resource that other kids might benefit from. And he got, and she was really upset about it, but she said, I can't do what I can't do. The resource teacher couldn't do what she couldn't do. She didn't have the skills. And at that stage for him, it, for some of them at that age, it's not too late, but he was severely dyslexic and he had a language disorder. And really he was, it was always going to be minimal improvements with him at that stage. He'd lost too much time. And that's, that's um, last September, I met a young man. He was 15 and a half, halfway through second level, threatening to leave school. The minute he hit 16, he had a reading age of seven years and two months on a word reading test that I gave him. Seven years and two months. He's 15 and a half. And that, I see that week after week are these huge gaps with the older children. And I get a lot of older children. I get a lot of boys. I, I get a phone call from somebody to say, the school suspect he's ADHD. They're going to expel him because of his behavior. Can you look at him? He's rarely ADHD. He's high IQ, can't read and getting really fed up. So he's acting out. Once they start learning out to school, the ADHD miraculously disappears. Now, I know there's lots of kids with ADHD, but some of these kids aren't. They just can't read. And yeah, it's it it, it has to be changed because they're at high risk of suicide. They're at high risk of going to jail. They're leaving school early. What are they going to do when they leave school? They're not employable. Some of them have wonderfully high IQs, we're losing the benefit of these gifted minds in our educational system and picking up the pieces when they start getting into mischief because nobody has given them another route and they are broken. Absolutely, a lot of them are just broken at that stage. And I think when you see that, you become passionate. But until you see that, I don't know if you're quite as passionate, but when you see it, uh, it's yeah, it's very upsetting. I find it very upsetting. It is. Still. And, and it's even more frustrating when you know that it doesn't have to happen. And that is what research has shown us. And we need to form a bridge between the research and the practice so that every classroom teacher knows about how we can do this and while there is mountains and mountains of information and different activities and research articles that support this a little bit of learning can go a long way for teachers especially in those early years and I've spoken to several teachers that have you know spent a little bit of time getting to know the basics 
and then implementing it in that next school year in their classroom using some early screening and identification measures, not to diagnose any of their students, but to identify the kids that are at risk and the areas that they need to gain support. Once they have this knowledge, they're able to use it to inform their practices and see the results. And this isn't just for students that are going to have reading be something that's an easier task for them to learn. It's the ones that are at the lowest level that are struggling the most and without the support will not become readers. And I think another point that I, I'd like to make is I think we have to be very careful, and I learned this last year when I decided to give the four talks, and the first two talks were to teachers. And the first day, there were probably 20 teachers there, and I was very nervous. I, I mean, I had just come out of the cave, and, and I stood up in front of them, and the girl who owned the, the study centre that kindly gave it to me um, was a teacher herself. And I stood up for three hours and I talked about long vowels and short vowels and open vowels and closed vowels and syllables. And I, blah, 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 blah. I spoke probably very quickly and nobody asked a question. And at the end of the three year, the three hours, everybody left. And I had to do the same thing again the following day. And I turned to the, the, the girl, Ruth, who owned the centre. And I said, God, Ruth, I hope we have a better bunch tomorrow that will ask questions. And she looked at me and she said, it's your fault. I said, what do you mean it's my fault? She said, those poor teachers had no clue what you were talking about. And they didn't want to seem stupid. So they were afraid to ask you a question. It's your fault that they left here without asking questions. So she said, tomorrow, you're going to have to change. And you're going to have to realize that they don't know. Because she said, I know I don't know. She said, I don't know what an open vowel is. You assume we do. We don't. So you have to change your language. And I would have spoken. I've, I've gone into a number of schools now to give it to give a talk. And that the talks, and that was a really, really valuable lesson. Because now I speak to them differently. And some of them have gone on and done masters and, and know the academic language. And no, I mean, even apart from long vowels and short vowels and, and what I think is very easy, they don't know the academic language. They don't know what morphemes are and graphemes are and orthographic mapping. And I think if, and I know a lot of them have joined our group, the Science of Reading uh, um, Facebook page for Irish teachers. And a lot of them said to, have said to me in schools, I never comment because I really don't know what it's about. So I just keep quiet. And I formed the opinion that if we need to get these young teachers really on board, we need to speak to them in very simple language because they won't know what we're talking about. I mean, heck, even I don't know what a, a lot of the language is because I was taught by kids. So my language is always very simple. Now I've learned over the last year, but my way of expressing um what kids need to do and how I figured out what kids need to do was figured out through very simple language because my teachers were the kids. And even now, I mean, I got Louisa Moltz's book at Christmas and I, I, I've read the first chapter. I'm probably not going to read anymore because it's for me, it, it, it's hard slog. I'm not an academic. And I think a lot of the teachers in schools aren't academics. They're just good teachers. 
And I think if we make it, if we make the teaching in the early stages and the language of trying to move them over very academic, we're going to frighten them. And we're going to make them feel a little bit like the dyslexics, that they're slightly out of their depth. And we, I think we have to be very careful with that, that we bring them along with language that they can understand until they get more knowledgeable. And it's creating that accepting environment because it's very unnerving when you're, you know, a professional and to learn that there's knowledge that you're missing and that this knowledge could really help you professionally. And we need to say, look, I'm sorry, this wasn't covered in your pre-service training program, that you don't have this knowledge, but we want to create a safe place for you to learn it and go back to square one. Now, there's going to be things that you're going to learn that you wished you learned at the beginning. And there may be students that come to mind like, if only I had known this when I had that student. And there can be a lot of guilt associated with that. But you have to remember, if you don't know what you don't know, you can't do anything about it. So you have to put yourself in that vulnerable position, willing to accept that there were things that you didn't know that you can learn and that going into that process of learning them is going to really help you with your students and professionally. And being able to accept the discomfort on that process, but know in the end, it's going to make your job easier. And, and that's where I find, you know, that the science of reading groups and the webinars and the presentations can be a little bit overwhelming because they, you get these slide packs or these slideshow presentations on PowerPoint and there's all these citations and jargon and it's intimidating and you, you see the acronyms and you're like what does that stand for again <laughs> and we need to make that safe place and the acceptance and the mentorship available for teachers by teachers helping students do better and I think that's really what the Right to Read initiative is all about and creating that common ground. Yeah, and what I started to do recently, and now I can do it, but I think 20 or 30 years ago, I, I got a lot of, and I know, I know that the, when Donna was interviewed, she made a comment she said it was something like the three biggest obstacles to educating children are egos, politics, and was it money? Money. And I said, what well, she was bang on. Because over the years, I would have gotten a lot of negative pushback with older teachers and their egos. And teachers that should have been really saying, you know, I, I see the changes in the kids that are in my school. What are you doing? And the opposite was happening. And there were a couple of schools that I, I, when I if I'd start a new child, I'd say, you know, what school is that child? And if they said a particular school, I'd say to the parents, please don't tell them you're coming over to me because you're going to get negative feedback. Now, that was then. Things have now changed. 
And now what I'm doing is when I've, after Christmas, I started four 12-year-old boys, not, not in this, two were in the same school, two were in different schools. And they were, they were probably all reading around seven. So that, and I knew they start secondary school in September. I see kids once a week for 45 minutes. That's it. And only 30 minutes of that is reading. I was against the clock. I, so I said, I really need help if I'm going to get these kids up by September. So I contacted their resource teacher, their, their literacy teacher, their special needs literacy teacher, whatever the same teacher, whatever the names are. And I rang them and I said, look, if I video what I'm doing with these kids once a week and they have a book that I've I've given them uh, and I WhatsApp that video to you, will you continue for the other four days? And they all said yes. And every week I don't do the whole lesson. I do maybe 20 minutes. So they're getting a sense of how to help them with the mistakes that they're going to make or that they do make that they that they're learning how to intervene. And they're learning what they need to teach because the, the structure in the books, it's all explicit and it's sequential and it's cumulative. And those kids, those four boys are turning inside out because we are working together. And it's just it's been absolutely wonderful because I, I would not have been able to get the job done as successfully on my own. I didn't have enough time, but now we're working together. And the teachers are learning as well. They're all on different levels. These four kids are all on different levels. So the teachers are learning and they're going to be able to implement what they're seeing on a video with the next kid that has a problem. And I, I think that's just amazing. Yeah, no, we do have a comment in the chat discussing how if the director of curriculum isn't on board, it doesn't matter what the teachers learn or want to know. And I see that time and a time and again. And I know in Canada, a lot of our curriculums are still focused on that balanced literacy or whole language approach to reading, which doesn't align with the science of reading or structured literacy, because we're drawing the student's attention away from reading the printed word. Now, while I can't speak to Ireland, um, but at least in Canada, teachers are given a lot of autonomy. And as long as they meet the curricular goals, they have a lot of freedom in how they do that. Now, there can be issues with that in making sure that best practices do happen, but it does provide that little bit of wiggle room for teachers to kind of branch out on their own and start that grassroots movement. And I've spoken to several teachers that have done that and been able to do little tweaks here and there in their classroom and make huge changing, even in schools where you have a large number of disadvantaged students that are definitely at risk for uh, school and reading failure. Now, after a year or two of doing this, the other teachers start to take notice because they see how the students are coming out of your classroom compared to other classrooms. And then they start to ask questions. And that's why making sure that we're not just 
waiting for that top-down approach and change to happen. We need to make sure the grassroots, bottom-up approach happens with teachers. And unfortunately, I, you know, realistically, I think we're still going to have to have the parents on board calling out the schools when their child is not learning how to read like their peers and like is expected. I, I don't know where that comment came from, and I don't work in a school environment, so I, I don't know a lot about the curriculum, but I think our teachers have a lot of autonomy because I've been invited into a lot of schools to give talks, and they are changing the way they're teaching children how to read within the school, and, and it's not on the curriculum. So I think that here, if it works, teachers will use it. I mean, they'll still have to, to use the curriculum, obviously, but if they use it to supplement the curriculum and it's working, I think we have a lot of autonomy here. I think we're lucky. I know some countries don't, but I, I think we're quite lucky here that, that teachers have a certain amount of freedom to use what they feel is going to work while still using the, the curriculum to supplement it. Yes, definitely. So if you were in a utopian society or a world where you could have control of how these changes would occur and what we could do to do things better for our students, what would you do? I would implement structured literacy in the baby classes the really with the really little kids because if one in five are dyslexic, and I don't know what the percentage of mild dyslexics are in that group. And none of them really get assessed here, at least until they're about 10 or 11. So if they get structured literacy in the early years, the mild dyslexics will read and their brain will start to read like the non-dyslexics eventually, and they won't get red flagged because they'll actually be reading. They'll have learned to read with the class through structure. And that will take the pressure off the remedial system because now when the kids are getting to eight, nine, 10 or whatever, or, or kids that look like they're okay up to about 10 and then suddenly the world comes crashing down and, and it's realized these kids are not reading. Then there's a flood of kids into the remedial system within the school, which cannot cope at that stage because there's of all of these kids. Whereas if that cohort of kids, well, if they were all taught through structure early on, at least that cohort of children would probably learn how to read without one-to-one -one tuition, without burdening the resource system within the school. And for the school, I think it would be better because the kids that need the one-to-one the -one tuition and, the, and the, the resource on an ongoing basis, that would be much lessened and they would get more resource and better resource because the kids that, that could learn in a group with the class, they'd be sorted out much earlier. There's, it's like it's kicking the can down the road to so that the... the they're all being funneled into resource at some stage if it's not getting sorted. If those that can be sorted easily at an earlier stage were sorted, it makes everybody's job much easier as these kids get older. Because once 
you open up once they start to get structure, if they're mildly dyslexic and they start to get structure, they're opening up the pathways to where they can actually read themselves. And they may never be red flagged as having a reading problem. Nobody might ever realize that they're dyslexic because they were they learned to read with the rest of the class through structure. That has to be a huge benefit if that happened, I think. Because you don't have all of these kids then. I mean, and those kids are so easy. They're the ones that are really easy to teach. Just give them, just give them the structure. And it's like putting a duck into a pond, they take off. So, so it's it's that's a no-brainer for me, I think. Yes. And I mean, it's important to note that there have been several research studies that have done exactly this with the classroom teachers providing the screening and the appropriate support along the way, making sure that all students get access to the systematic explicit instruction, highlighting the areas that the students need as a group. And yes, there are going to be some things that a group of five or six students need focus on. And that's when you do the, the smaller group instruction so that you can make sure that those students get the skills that they need in that cl whole class environment. And a lot of the time, uh, especially when we're looking at things like dyslexia, the core issue with dyslexics is most commonly a deficit in phonological and phonemic awareness. Now there are very effective activities that you can do with students as a whole group, small group, as a classroom teacher that you can help support the development and these. And as you mentioned, this can start as early as some of those preschool years. We can see this in four and five-year-olds. And with the appropriate instructional support along the way, we can catch them before them they fall, teach them the skills that they need, that they were weak in, before they are needing them with the formal reading instruction. So if we're able to catch them up before the instruction begins, they're starting at a more level playing field with their peers, and they can make the progress at the same time as their peers so that they aren't dealing with the same gaps that you see the other students having. Now, we are uh, having a question about the activities that you would suggest um, for this structure. And would you do uh, it as like station teaching or whole class teaching? How, how do you see this working? Well, I don't work in a school environment. I'm lucky to have kids in a one-to-one -one situation. And the, the most kids I would have ever seen together were four. Um, and it's a huge privilege when you can have a child in a one-to-one -one situation. So it's, I I don't work in a classroom situation. So it's it's hard to advise in a situation that you've never worked in. But I've, I've seen videos, especially in England, when they started with the synthetic phonics. And they had all of these videos of teachers of, little kids, five-year-olds doing drill cards and teaching them the sounds and teaching them how to put two sounds together and three sounds together. It's very easy to do that as a group. And they support one another and they compete to get it right. And, and they can all get it right together at that stage. Um, 
And I think that, that stuff like that is very easy to do, even in a classroom situation. And don't stigmatize. I mean, I, some of these kids feel very stigmatized when they have to leave the classroom every day and go to special ed. And obviously, some of them are going to have to do that to for a long, long time. But there's a lot of the kids that won't ever need that if we teach them a certain amount in the class. I mean, I've had kids in the past that I've started, younger kids often, that don't know their letter sounds, don't know how to put any any sounds together. And literally within six months, they're reading words that they've never seen and they're using skills that I haven't taught them. It's like the penny dropped. It's like the whole, the brain opened up and they don't need any more instruction. Even there's still a lot that I could teach them. They are then, they're swimming on their own. I, I mean, I, I know I use all these phrases that they're not academic phrases, but it's the way I look at these kids, they've taken off. And I, all the kids I finish with, I monitor every six months when they're on their own to make sure they're they're doing okay and those kids always do okay on their own so there's a huge bunch of these kids that need a little bit of instruction and they can get it in the class and you're developing their brain to learn how to read like the kids that read easily and if if even those kids were caught if even those kids were caught they didn't end up in the remedial system, it would benefit the schools because the schools wouldn't be spending all this money on all of these kids that they need to remediate and catch up because they are not ending up in the special needs situ in the, the special needs rooms or the remedial rooms or, or whatever they're called. But also the severely dyslexics, if they're not, if you're not intervening with them until they're 10 or 11, well, it's very hard to catch them up well at that stage because they've missed so much and then they probably have language deficits because they're not reading they may not have those language deficits if you'd started them earlier and you'd identified them earlier and you started kicking in with some language help as well that they'd be in a much they'd still have a struggle but by the time they're 12 or 13 then they're taking off because you've helped them the whole way along. You haven't waited until they're really struggling to backpedal. And I see a lot of those kids with four, five, and six years of a reading gap between their chronological age and their reading age. That's huge. To try and make up for those last years in school, it, that shouldn't happen. Definitely. And I have actually just put um, four uh, links to YouTube videos in the chat that look at various ways that teachers do this type of instruction in their classroom. The first is Kim Lockhart, who shows us how she uses structured literacy and a early in, uh, French immersion special education classroom. Now, while this is talking about French immersion students, the strategies and the support that she has uh, work with English speaking students as well. And the interview is in English. So even if you are teaching at an English speaking school, you can see some very good examples there. I also have a video from Dorothy McKay who is showing us how she uses the science of reading in a grade, or sorry, in a, I think she's in grade 
one and two classroom. So she takes us step by step through the activities she does with her students in the classroom. Then we have Kate Wynn doing a description of the activities that she uses with her students in a kindergarten classroom as a whole class. And the final one is Michelle Vidad looking at how she uses the science of reading in a special education classroom, or sorry, in her grade two classroom. Now, this is a teacher that only began her journey into the science of reading last summer, and she's applied what she's known in her classroom this year. And she has said that it makes a world of difference because it has allowed her to um, make progress and realize that even though she's teaching a grade two classroom, she is working with students that are not at a grade two level. So she was able to redesign her curriculum to meet the needs of her students. And she's seeing a lot of success. And she tells us how there's no way she's going back to what she did before and that it's making a huge difference. Um, apparently the second video with Dorothy McKay was a private video on YouTube. I have added the link to the replays on the Right to Read initiative website. So hopefully you can access those. You can also access the audio version of all these lives that we're doing with the Right to Read initiative on the Right to Read initiative podcast. So this conversation and others are archived for you to reference in the future. Now, um, we have someone saying that they love your honesty. So many people have no problem telling us what to do in the classroom when they haven't stepped foot in one for decades. So I think that's, that's key in understanding this, that we need to take our... Um, information and our understanding and put them in the context that we know it and how how to move forward but realize that when we're looking at things related to structured literacy and the science of reading the concepts cross teaching areas so understanding the basic concepts such as the simple view of reading or Scarborough's reading rope, understanding those skills that we need to focus on with our students to make it so that they are efficient at word recognition and have the language comprehension skills that they need to become fluent confident readers that can understand their reading are very important. Now, I am very happy that you've given me the opportunity to speak with you today, Mary. You've definitely got a wealth of information and your Decode Dyslexia has a, a lot of great information on it, including some 
books that have been designed for teachers to kind of act as a dummy's guide to teaching reading that are great reference materials. Uh, Is there anything else that you think it's important for us to cover? Uh, Not really, I suppose. The only thing thing really I have to say is when teachers make the, the shift and they start to see the changes in the kids, that feeling is just magic. And I don't think anybody can explain it until you see it that these kids just light up and they get so excited and I mean kids come into me after a long day at school um often late at night and I torture them and they come in smiling most of them come in smiling because and, and the other thing actually that, that a, lo- a lot of teachers will ask one of the questions they will they'll say is I have a I'm teaching a 12 year old and she really can't read I don't want to um have her read CVC words and simple words like that because I don't want to embarrass her and my answer is always the same she would rather be reading CVC words and embarrassed and coping than than handing her a book with words like ostrich and elephant and uh, words that she's expected to recognize that she feels like she's fallen, falling off a cliff so don't worry about embarrassing her with because I have taught 17 18 19 year olds back I've started them at the, with the alphabet and I've started them on CVC words and they've been on them maybe for a little while and I don't think any of them has ever been embarrassed because they didn't feel like they were overwhelmed and out of their depth and for them, it was more important that they weren't overwhelmed and are out of their depth. But the, the initial point I was making is once you start teaching these kids through structure, once you see the first kid blossom and the first kids start to do very easily what they were really, really struggling with, you'll never forget that feeling ever. Definitely. And as, as an interventionist myself, I, I see that all the time. And the importance of going back to where the individual is and taking the time to really understand the skills that they have and the skills that they need supported so that we can make sure that the instruction is appropriate for their needs. And once they begin to crack that code and understand how to read, that success breeds success and that desire to learn more. I know one of the criticisms of using structured literacy or having that, you know, heavy um, phonemic awareness and phonological awareness, phonics instruction in intervention is that it's drill and kill and then kids are going to tire of it. Well, in actual fact, if it's something that they need, they're not going to tire on it and they're going to want to do it until they understand and have it down pat. Then we need to move our instruction on to the level that they are at and continue to build on the skills that they need. Absolutely. And you'll have happy kids. Yes. And happy parents. (laughs) And happy parents. I don't get to meet the parents very often, but definitely you have happy kids. And if you have happy kids, it's a joy to spend time with them. It's not a chore. It's not work. It's it's just a joy. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for joining me today, Mary. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, thanks a lot. And thanks for all you do. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.